welcome to another episode of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Lisa Pettibone, and I've been planning for the future. You may have noticed that I've seemed stressed out or spaced out since Corona, and even that I've been missing episodes lately. Well, today I'm going to tell you why. I've been working on a big project together with artist, performance, and discussion space Akud Macht Neu that I want to tell you more about. So Akud Macht Neu just launched Collective Practices, a program that dives into the idea of collective practice as it relates to artistic creation, cultural organizing, and social coexistence. It does this through four thematic explorations. Hashtag narratives, hashtag knowledges, hashtag care, and hashtag resistance. Pretty cool, right? Well, I'm fortunate enough to initiate one of the artistic projects in this program, a series of online workshops called Stories from the Future. For the rest of the year, I'm going to collaborate with 20 artists, activists, and researchers to imagine our world 10 years in the future, a world that uses degrowth principles to become carbon neutral. What will this 2030 look like? We'll figure it out together and create artifacts to send back to 2020. Stories and poems, PowerPoints and articles, sculpture and song. I can't wait. You can check out Stories from the Future and all the projects taking place in collective practices at Akud Macht Neu's website, akudmachtneu.de. I'll put the link in the show notes for non-German listeners. So today's episode is a special treat that I hope you enjoy. Curator Daniela Sivestlin wanted to talk to me for collective practices, and I thought that in the spirit of my project, I'd ask her to host the interview 10 years from now, in 2030. That means a bit of whiplash in pretending the workshops haven't happened yet, even though it's 10 years later, but it really got me thinking about how much the world can and must change in the next 10 years. Take a listen to my chat with Daniela, the first story from the future. Hi, Lisa. Um, I'm really happy that we can talk about, uh, we can talk today. I wanted to speak with you about the workshop series, Stories from the Future, that will take place as part of our collective practices program at Akut Macht Neu. It was originally scheduled in 2020, but um, unfortunately we had to postpone it until now, 10 years later, May 2030. And um, yeah, so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the workshop and uh, also about your approach to collectivity and speculative fiction. And my first question would be, what does collectivity mean for your work and research? And um, how does it resonate with our program, Collective Practices? Thanks. Well, and thanks for uh, agreeing to let me do those, these workshops so much longer after we originally planned. Um, I think what made me most excited about joining this project was 
the title itself, Collective Practices, because to me, collectivity is really the center of change, that you can't get change without a huge number of people interested in that change. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting with sustainability is sustainability, you know, in the literature for a long time was seen as a niche area of only a few people were interested, only a few people even really knew what it meant. And of course, then you can't get a transition to sustainability, right? You need to have a lot more people involved. You need to build a collectivity. You need to build kind of a, a movement, not just of a critical mass of people, but a critical mass of people who feel connected to each other. So it's about quantity and it's about connection, collectivity for me. And I think one thing that, that you know, if we want to look back to, to 2020 when this should have happened, we saw a huge public health crisis that led to a new identification as this collectivity for change in terms of climate, in terms of sustainability. And it led to the sp surprise election in the United States where Democrats wiped the field. They're, what we saw after the 2020 election was, I think it was 95 senators were Democrats, even in races where there wasn't a senator running for office. Somehow the Republican became a Democrat. It was it was shocking. And the, the, the House of Representatives became, I think it was an 89% Democrat, and it led to the major change of the Republican Party basically disbanding that. I mean, think about that, that 10 years ago we had we had a president. You might not even remember this. Donald Trump was the last Republican president there will ever be because that political party, that collectivity doesn't exist anymore. And and that's really what it what it's about for me. It's about finding these connections and creating these identities around themes, around actions that need to be taken to make the world a better place. Um, yeah, you're actually, I mean, one of the things that I was fascinated about when I, when I met you and, and learned about, is that, about you is that you're trained as a scientist, but um, your work and practice actually involves a lot of um, creative methods and a cre creative um, working, uh, ty types of working. So uh, you do storytelling, for example, through the, the podcast, um, you work with speculation, you work with uh, creative writing, and um, yeah, probably uh, many other forms and media of creative expression. And um, actually, part of the collective practices program was one thematic exploration or a thematic strand that uh, was called hashtag narratives. So that was the, the let's say, the major connection and major reason um, why I wanted to invite you and collaborate for, for the program. So my question here would be, um, what do you think is the potential and power of stories and storytelling to create change in the world we live in? And how can storytelling be uh, used to collectively think about our collective future? Great question, a tricky question. Um, I think before we can talk about how storytelling can shape our collective future, it's important to acknowledge that it does, right? That every day in ways that are intended and unintended, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we share, 
they affect how our world exists. And for me as a political scientist, when I study this as a research object, um, a research focus, I focus on the stories that come together to form our political identity under the term ideology. So these are stories that we might not even be aware that they affect who we are so deeply. And I think this is something that's very important for me as a scientist, as well as this idea that stories also and ideology, they govern how we understand facts, that facts are not the root of how humans work to understand the world. It's our stories and our ideologies that depending on how we see things, that's how we decide what facts, what truths are even relevant towards our action. So let's go back again to to 2020. I've been thinking about it a lot, I think, because this interview is taking place exactly 10 years later. Um, So remember the global pandemic that killed over 2 million people in two waves. It was really a horrible crisis, but at the same time, it forced a change in story. And here I find it very interesting to look at Europe, that in Europe you saw a new story emerge that had been kind of bubbling up under the surface for maybe 10 years before. And this story I like to call degrowth. It said capitalism and economic growth are the engines that are destroying the environment, destroying social bonds and promoting huge economic inequality and injustice. And this story tied together facts that became obvious to millions more people with the coronavirus crisis. So this led to kind of an ideological transition, if you want to get into get political sciency, where a huge number of people said, you know what, we need different types of policy. We need different types of individual and group action. And this story helps us understand where we can and should fit in this world. Yeah, I mean, talking about the virus or the pandemic and coronavirus, um, when you look at fiction or science fiction stories, usually viruses have a very dystopian role in them. And during that pandemic 10 years ago, we saw not many, but few other examples. For example, on the one hand, people that tried to think differently about viruses. For example, there was a futurologist, uh, a German futurologist, um, Matthias Hawks, who came up with a concept called Regnose. Um, And so he used that concept to look at today from a future point in time in order to kind of reduce the worries or the fears about what was happening or yeah, what was about to happen. Or for example, there was an artist called Heather Dewey Hackborg who developed a work called Lovesick Virus. And this virus um, would be able to boost oxytocin. So once you would be uh, infected with that virus, you would boost uh, or you would produce more oxytocin and thus more empathy and more love. And this would also be shown through your cells turning more red. So here the virus had actually a very positive effect and a very kind of an effect that would connect the people rather than disconnect them. 
And the coronavirus itself had the positive effect, at least um, on some uh, environmental and uh, issues and climate crisis to a certain extent, at least. So the question would be, what, what are your feelings about corona, let's say, um, especially, but viruses as a creator of dystopia versus creators of utopias? Well, first, I want to say I love the idea of a lovesick virus. And I think that, to me, embodies what corona was, is that it was a crisis, but at the same time, an opportunity. And that's really, to me, where this idea, this dichotomy of utopias and dystopias is interesting. Because the key word for me is agency. I care about creating future worlds where when you read about them, you're interested and motivated to act. I don't like future worlds that hit you over the head and make you happy that, oh, the world is great. I don't have to do anything or sad. Wow, everything sucks. I'm going to have to grab a beer now. So I personally gravitate towards utopias. Those are the stories that I read that make me think, wow, this is the world I want to make real. But I've taught utopias and dystopias enough that I know that there are a lot of people who are not like me, that they read utopias and they think that's unrealistic. We're never going to get that. And they, they would rather run away from something than run towards something. And I guess maybe I sometimes I wonder if the reason that I gravitate towards utopias is I grew up on Disney animated films. I actually when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Disney animator. So maybe that's kind of baked into my being that I, I'm interested in, in getting to that happy ending. And for me, kind of utopian speculative fiction is the way of getting to my Disney ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Corona actually sparked a lot of creativity, I think, um, because, of course, also when what so when you looked at the crisis, parts of, of what were accompanying that pandemic was um, actually a flood of funny memes and gifs and videos that people created themselves and sent around through social media channel, channels. And um, yeah, so the, a prevalent reaction of, of these people who were like in all this desperation and, and, and individual difficulties that were experienced, they seemed mainly to react in a humorous way. And, and create humorous ways of mocking and laughing about the reality that actually was not that funny uh, in many moments. And my question would be, what is, uh, like looking at your own work and practice, what role does humor and uh, positive thinking play in it? So this is um, something that has often made me feel like I'm not fully a member of the scientific community because I need humor to thrive. And I've started many a scientific presentation with jokes that usually fall flat. Um, but it's, it's very, very, very important to me. I think part of it is because the world has so many problems and there are so many serious issues that, you know, at the end of the day, you need a little bit of uplift or I mean I do anyway I know you know after I do a whole day of research and reading about sustainability I like to shut off with Bollywood music and drag queens those are kind of my go-to's at the end of the day 
And what they have in common is joy, which is something that I very much am interested in bringing into my work. But I think what also makes the joy in the Bollywood context and the drag queen context or drag performance context in general is that it comes from this very serious place. But I mean, if you watch a drag show, they're almost always very political and they use this joy to channel a serious message. So I think that's really what I try to do in my work and practice. And then, of course, with as many bad jokes and puns as possible. Because I think that also helps get people on board, right? They want to be entertained. They want to laugh. Um, and they want to be picked up where they are. Yeah. Talking about more serious aspects, actually. Um, today, in 2030, we're... Like we reached exactly the ten uh, the deadline that we set ten years ago to reach carbon neutrality. So we wanted to get uh, humans' greenhouse gas emissions to no higher than the planet's carbon sinks. Um, and when when we from the point we are at today, when we look at these goals that we set ten years ago, how would you summarize what happened in these last ten years? And Like, what changes were the most important and how far did we get? Um, I mean, many many people uh, demanded radi radical changes um, after the, the corona crisis um, about the ways we produce emissions, about the way we consume and how we inhabit the planet in general. So what would you say? How did this moment and turning point influence or contribute to the point we are at now? Well, here I kind of um, want to go back to the two changes that I already mentioned that we saw in the U.S. and Europe. Now, I mentioned the U.S. and Europe not because I want to put all my focus on the global north, but because that's the context that I know the most through my research and my personal experience as a born American who lives in Germany. And what we saw is a dramatic change in both of these areas to address the climate crisis. So I can't believe that I would be saying this today, but we're almost there. We have reduced, as I'm sure you know, greenhouse gas emissions by 90% in the last 10 years, which is, I would say, very close to a miracle, to be honest, that it's the only 10 years of decline since the beginning of the Industrial Re Revolution. So this is something that, I mean, we can all give ourselves a huge hand for. Uh, at the same time, I think the focus on climate action, particularly in the U.S., as opposed to more broad sustainability action that we saw in Europe, means that there are still a lot of threats that we face, particularly biodiversity loss and economic justice. So I think the next step is to kind of push really towards building that collective story of a global community of humans and non-humans who need care. Because I think this is something that particularly in the U.S. with a very technologically focused story of, yeah, we need to become carbon neutral, but not we need to protect threatened species, not we need to protect workers, not we need to care about what people are doing and give people time. 
beyond their work hours. So I think Corona very much was kind of the the fuse that that let that began all of this change. But there's still a lot lot to do. And I think in this moment, I should probably point out at least one of the excellent books by social scientists who have talked about this change. And here I draw very strongly on the work of Octavia Le Guin, and in particular, Wage Emancipation, Utopia Realized. This is an excellent book. I think it's uh, 2028 that she she published this. I really recommend it for everyone. Fantastic. But yeah, talking about building stories, uh, maybe I as my last question, I would um, ask you to tell maybe a little bit about what will happen in the workshop that we are going to start very soon now. So what will we do there and what direction will the project take? So this is something that I'm particularly excited about because I very gleefully can't answer your question. And that is because I've kind of purposely planned these workshops to be open and to figure out, well, what is it that these participants bring to the table and what can we create together that I couldn't have created by myself, for example, and that none of us could have created by ourselves. So it's funny, as I've been kind of planning and, you know, imagining these workshops, I've had a very hard time figuring out what is the noun that I use to describe my role in these workshops and the best that I've come up with is initiator that I see my role as getting the ball rolling bringing everybody into the room and then listening to what they all want so for example the the main thrust is envisioning our future in 10 years and bringing back artifacts from that future what those artifacts are going to be, I've purposely left open. Now, I have a lot of ideas of things I would like to create. I would love to create a fake TED Talk of our wonderful utopia 10 years in the future. I would love to write short fiction. I'm not a particularly good visual artist, so that's something that would be difficult for me to do. But I would love to have visual artists. I would love to have performers and I would love to have activists and scientific experts who know a lot about things that I don't know very much about who can really push these workshops in ways that I couldn't even expect. So that's what makes me happy to to think about, wow, I don't actually know what the, the outcome is going to be. I think To me, the main reason that I'm doing it that way is as an experiment in collectivity. What does it mean to initiate a series of workshops to look at the future that I purposely leave open? Are they going to completely crash and burn and fail? Maybe. And then we'll know, okay, this experiment in radical collectivity didn't really work. But what I hope is that by empowering everybody to really work together on the same level, that we all grow in ways that we couldn't if I were kind of the workshop leader and the expert in some, you know, teacher mentor role. So whatever comes out, I'm, I'm really excited and I can't wait to see who's ready to join me. Well, I can only join you in that statement. I also can't wait 
for the uh, workshop to start and I'm looking much forward and uh, thanks a lot for this very nice interview and uh, I'll see you soon then. Thank you very much. Okay, let's get back to 2020. Sorry, I don't have the money for sound effects here. Uh, are we here? Uh, I, I think so, yes. Wow, what a nice trip into the future. Thanks for joining me for that bit of time travel. If you want to sign up for the workshops, they're not going to start in 2030, but they're starting in just a few weeks on June 7th. Go to myclimatediet.org backslash stories from the future for more information. What's giving me hope this week? Starting work on Stories for the Future, I have been able to tap into a rich world of creativity and activism to make the world a better place. Specifically, I took part in a webinar on Friday that was all about the pluriverse. There are thousands of great initiatives, approaches, and activities happening right now. And the pluriverse as a concept says we don't have to pick the one right solution, the one right word, but we can create room for interconnected solutions that deal with the complex interconnected problems we face. I'm definitely going to pick up the book that just came out, Pluriverse, a Post-Development Dictionary, and follow the work of its editors, Frederico De Maria, Ashish Kothari, Susan Paulson, Alberto Acosta, Giorgos Callis. So thanks to you and to John Foran of the University of California, Santa Barbara for organizing the webinar. This podcast is a labor of love and you can show me you care by telling me why you listen at lisa at myclimatediet.org. Thanks to David from Quince for letting me use his wonderful music. And if you want to stay up to date, follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. And don't forget to rate My Climate Diet on Apple Podcasts. That makes it easier for other people to find me and start their own climate diet. Because if everyone went on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Revolution.